Avina Hamishamayam, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh Micha, Father in heaven, holy, holy, holy is your name. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together once again to open your word and, Lord, to hear what you have to teach us. So, Father, speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. And what you teach us, we'll do. We love you, Lord. We love serving you. So anoint me, Lord, to teach your word in, with love and with truth. B'Shem Yeshua, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We finally got to the reason you invited me to begin with. Jesus and the prophets. And uh, so, being as how, I don't do anything as expected. I thought we'd do things a little different tonight. That'd be okay? So instead of just diving into messianic prophecies, the prophecies that tell about Jesus' coming, which we'll get to that later, I wanted to show you or talk to you a little bit first about coming in late. You know how coming in late is? And about our policy that the last one in buys dinner for everybody. You are so far, so. <laughs> the, the last one in in a blue shirt buys dinner. No. <laughs> but you're safe, I just say. All right, so I want to talk to you about and show you how God appears to people in Scripture in ways that you don't necessarily expect. And the first place we're going to start is in Bereshit, in Genesis chapter 18, where God appears to Abraham. Abraham. And in Genesis 18, now, back in a couple chapters before, or chapter before, Abraham had just entered into Brit Milah, the covenant of circumcision, all right? And so this was the third day after this old man had been circumcised. And, and it says that he was sitting in the opening of his tent. Now, I have it on good authority that the third day after circumcision is the most painful. It reminds me of the story. Do you tell jokes in church? No? Okay. Well, I don't do anything the way anybody else does. All right. Reminds me of the story about these two little boys that are in the hospital and uh, their roommates. And they're about 13 years old. And, and it's a little Jewish boy, a little Arab boy. And uh, neither one of them were looking too happy. And the Arab boy says to his roommate, he says, uh, so uh, what are you in for? And the Jewish kid says, well, I'm having my tonsils taken out. He says, oh, man, you're going to love this. He said, you know, it's an easy operation. They feed you pudding and ice cream. They treat you like a kid. It's going to be easy. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And the Jewish says, that's cool. Thanks. Said, what are you in for? He said, well, I'm in for circumcision. He said, oh, man, when I had mine, I couldn't walk for a year. <laughs> you see, Arabs are circumcised at 13 years and Muslims and Jews are circumcised on the eighth day. So he couldn't walk for a year. Anyway, so Abraham had just been circumcised. And in Genesis 18, verse 1, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, three men were standing opposite him. He saw them. He ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth and says, My Lord, if I found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. All right, notice it starts out by saying the Lord appeared. And then it says three men appeared. Okay, so who were these three guys? Well, two of them we see all the way down in verse 22. Then the men turned away from there. It was two men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So two of these men were the angels that went down <clears throat> to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But the third man was the Lord who appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. I mean, Abraham served him, you know, cheese and meat. He had a, a calf prepared for him, and he served him curd or cheese and, and fed him. So, God, the Lord, appeared to Abraham in the form of a man, which raises the question, who was it? Well, in John chapter 1, it gives us a pretty clear indication. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt with us. Tabernacle dwelt with us. All right? So, <clears throat> the rabbis tell us that before the earth was created, 
three things existed. Hashem, God, the Torah, and the Messiah. Pretty interesting. This is Orthodox rabbinic teaching. The Messiah existed before the world was formed. John believed that. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that was coming to being. In Him in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness didn't comprehend it. Alright? So, back in Genesis, the Messiah shows up. As a man. <clears throat> Later on, Jacob sees him. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 24, and Jacob was left alone and the man wrestled with him until daybreak. And he saw that he had not prevailed against him. This man touched the socket of Jacob's thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. From whom would he be seeking a blessing? Probably from God. But the man said, uh, so the man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Yaakov, Jacob. Now, what does Jacob mean? Supplanter. Actually, it means heel grabber. Literally. It means one who grabs the heel. But supplanter. All right. He says, no longer... Your, law, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men have prevailed. So who had he striven with? God. Who had he been wrestling with? God. And Jacob says, please tell me your name. And he says, why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, which means the face of God. Peni, face of El, God. Because I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. He recognized that he had seen God face to face. He'd been wrestling with God face to face. All right? So again, who is he wrestling with? God in the form of a man. Who is that? It's Yeshua. It's Jesus. All right, later God appears as the angel of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word angel is malach, and malach means angel but it doesn't necessarily mean angel like a giant structure with wings. You know these great little pictures we get around Valentine's Day, all little cherubs, cute little babies with wings and all that. Every time an angel appears in Scripture, the first thing out of its mouth is, fear not. Every angel in Scripture is a man and is fierce. But the word for angel, literally, malik, it means messenger. And the New Testament tells us what are angels, yet messengers sent by God to do the work for us. To work for us, all right? Anyway, so, remember the story of Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. <laughs> Balak tried to hire Balaam to come curse Israel. Didn't go too well for him. Um, so Balaam's on his way to go meet with Balak. And the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. All right, so... Balaam is, is on a donkey that he's had for years and years and years. And the donkey runs him up against the wall. And then the donkey runs him up against the other wall. And eventually the donkey just sits down. And Balaam yells at the donkey. He says, if this stick was a sword, I'd kill you right now. But he's beating his donkey. Because the donkey had seen an angel. All right? Interesting. Now, prior to what I'm going to read you. This donkey sits down, and Balaam strikes the donkey and talks to the donkey. You know, what, what's with you? Why are you doing this to me? And the donkey says, haven't I always taken good care of you? He says, yes, so what are you doing this for? You know what amazes me? This donkey starts talking to him, he just talks back. You know, like it was a normal thing. Anyway, so then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. He bowed all the way to the ground. The angel said to him, why have you struck your donkey three times? He says, behold, I've come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside three times. If it had not turned aside for me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Now, see, Balaam had just said, if this stick was a sword, I'd kill you now. And the angel of the Lord says, hey, I got a sword. 
If the donkey had let you pass, I'd have killed you. And so Balaam said to the angel of God, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So the angel of the Lord is another manifestation of the presence of God. And he comes in the appearance as a man. Whether he had wings or not, we don't really know. The wings are an affectation of artists. Right? They came up with the whole idea. Um, there's scripture about on the wings of angels. Do all angels have wings? We really don't know. We know that some do because scripture talks about the wings of angels. Okay. Um, God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 22, verses 9 and 10. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called him and says, Avram, Avram. All right. Now, in this instance, the messenger of God spoke to Abraham from out of heaven. All right. He didn't come down and appear to him. He spoke to him from heaven. And I think that that's another interesting thing. Um, Where's Yeshua? Where's Jesus now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. All right? So when he makes intercession for us, he's doing it seated at the right hand of the Father. So when he intervenes in our life, he speaks to us out of heaven. All right? So that's his normal place. The angel of the Lord appeared to the sons of Israel, to, to the sons of Judah and Judges. The angel of the Lord said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I've sworn to your fathers. And he said, I've never break my covenant with you. So the angel of the Lord is speaking as God. Who made a covenant with Israel? Some angel? No, God. So the angel of the Lord is another manifestation of God's presence. The angel of the Lord, in Judges chapter 6, came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, and he said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Again, he comes and he manifests himself as a man. All right. And then further in that chapter, he's, the angel of the Lord took the staff and touched the offering that Gideon had made and put on the altar, and it burns up all of a sudden. So the angel of the Lord, this man, does things just like a man, but then some, you know, supernaturally intervened. The angel of the Lord appeared at first to Samson's mother, told her she was going to have a son, that he was going to be a Nazarite from birth, very unusual, and then to his father, and the father says, what is your name? So that if your words come to pass, we can honor you. And the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask me my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Whose name is wonderful? Well, according to Isaiah 9, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's a wonder to this day that a baby could be born and be called this child shall be born and be called eternal father and wonderful. The angel of the Lord appeared to David in First Chronicles 21. All right. Um, David had sinned. And so the, the, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and told Gad to go tell David. Now, this is interesting. An angel of the Lord appears to a man and tells him, go tell David, purchase this threshing floor. David didn't even hear that directly from God. He didn't even hear it directly from God's messenger. He heard it from a man that the angel spoke to. And that threshing floor is the place where both temples were built on Mount Moriah. Kind of cool. Um, and then, so this, the presence of God appeared as a man, appeared as an angel, and he appeared as fire. The most obvious one, most best known one is Moses. First, God appears to Moses in a bush that burned and wasn't consumed. And then at Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord descended in fire and appeared to Moses again. All right. And then later in Genesis or back up in Genesis chapter 15, uh, God told Abraham to sacrifice all these animals and separate their parts. And a deep sleep came over him and the fire passed through the parts. All right. Well, the fire is a manifestation of God. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Consuming fire. All right. That was just amazing to me, and I decided to 
give it to you. And I've got for you a handout that has what I showed you and more. I'll give it to you later. Okay. But, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, there are about 60 different prophecies that are referred to over 300 times about the Messiah. And, lo and behold, they're only fulfilled in one person. Go figure. Um, all four Gospels record several times when Jesus said he was fulfilling a prophecy, one prophecy or the other. But in Luke 24, it says, beginning at Moses and all through the prophets, he expounded unto them, and he said to them, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Torah of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. This was when, after Jesus had been resurrected, and he goes to those two guys who were walking on the road to Emmaus, and he goes into their house with them, and he says, hey, everything that happened had to happen because everything had to fulfill the prophecies. The very first prophecy about the Messiah was spoken not by somebody we normally categorize as a prophet, but rather by Moses himself. Moses says in Deuteronomy, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your own brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in the days of the assembly. Him you will hear and him you must obey. All right. Now, Moses is a picture. He was the first redeemer of Israel. All right. Israel was in bondage in Egypt, and Moses led them out of their captivity. But the final redemption will come at some time in the future when, according to Romans 11, all Israel is saved. All right. And the final redeemer is Jesus. All right. And so Jesus and Moses have a lot in common. Um, like Moses, the Messiah would be a leader, a prophet, a lawgiver, a deliverer, a teacher, a priest, an anointed one, a mediator, uh, a human, and one of God's chosen people. And he would perform the role of an intermediary, you know. When, you know why the Ten Commandments are called, the, or you know why they're such a big deal? You know why we got the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are not everything that God spoke to Moses on Sinai. I mean, come on, folks. Forty days to give him ten words? I mean, Rose, Moses, you know, he didn't write, he didn't talk that small, slow. He wasn't from Texas, right? <laughs> he was Israeli. They spoke fast. But anyway, um, no, God gave the entire Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai. But the ten words were what all Israel heard. After the ten words were given, the people says, hey, Moses, we can't stand this. If we hear his voice continually, we will die. So you go. You listen to him. That was nice. If somebody's going to die from hearing God's voice, it's going to be you, not us. It's basically their message, right? So the ten words, that was what everybody heard. So those should be the foundational commandments that everybody follows. Wouldn't you agree? We're nodding, but we're not doing. But we're not going to go there. I'm going to be gracious. We're not going to talk about the fourth commandment today. Um, but the rest of it, all of it, all the Torah was given to Moses at Sinai. It was given to Israel through Moses at Sinai. Um, they both spent the early years of their lives in Egypt. Right? They both taught truth from God that was revelatory. It was new to them. They both cured lepers. You know, Moses cured the lepers in Numbers 12, and Jesus cured the lepers in Matthew 8. They both confronted demonic powers. They were both uh, doubted by their followers initially. You know, the people that were they were sent to didn't believe them at first, but they came along. Moses lifted up a brazen serpent to heal all the people of faith. Jesus was lifted up like the serpent to heal all of us of faith. All right. Uh, <clears throat> Moses, now get this. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, shows up, you know, comes from Midian, shows up, has an encounter with God. We would say got saved, all right? Came to worship. He made a sacrifice and worshiped the true and living God. And the very next day, he says, Moses, now in your translation, he asked Moses, what are you doing for these people? But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. In the Hebrew, it says, what are you doing to these people? Moses was hearing all their arguments. He was the only judge in all of Israel. All right? And Jethro says, what are you doing to these people? You know, 
And, and when you think about it, it wasn't that he was serving the people so well. He was the bottleneck. So Jethro told him, hey, appoint men who are righteous and just and let them do this. And so Moses appointed 70 who would judge the people, hear their complaints and settle their disputes. And if it was a big deal, if it was something they needed to go to God for, they'd bring it to Moses. Moses would take it to God. He'd give the answer to the judges and they'd meet out the sentence of the judgment. All right. And then later, Jesus sent out 70 disciples. How come Jesus sent 70 disciples? Anybody have any wild guesses of that? This week's Torah portion, this Saturday, every synagogue in the world, they're going to read a portion called Noah, the story of Noah. All right? The descendants of Noah numbered, well, he had three sons, but their generations, they numbered 70 nations were established, were founded by the descendants of Noah. On, Yom, on, on uh, Sukkot, on the Feast of Tabernacles, when the temple stood, the Israelites made sacrifice, 70 bulls. They, they sacrificed on behalf of the nations. Now, nations in Hebrew is the word goyim. It means Gentiles, all right? There were 70 nations established. And so Jesus sent out 70 disciples because he wanted his truth to go out to everybody, to all the nations, all the Gentiles. That was true. Um, it's prophesied that, that uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 9 that uh, Noah said, Blessed be the, God, the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And then that's in Genesis chapter 9. Chapter 10 goes on to list the descendants of Shem, noting that he was an ancestor of Ebar, the founder of the Hebrew race. So the Hebrew people came out of Shem. And guess what? Jesus is from there. Right? Um, Noah associated Shem with worship of God. Um, and so he determined that, that the descendants of Canaan, which were the Syrians, the Assyrians, all of the Ites, Jebusites, Canaanites, Hittites, all the Ites, they were descendants of Canaan. And they would serve Israel forever. All right? Jesus would come out of the one who would be ruler over all those nations. Um, Genesis 22 says more specifically that that the Messiah would be descendants not only of Shem, but through one of Shem's descendants named Abraham. In Genesis 22 it says that. That was fulfilled. I mean, look at Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Son of David, son of Abraham. More specifically... He wouldn't just be a descendant of Abraham. He would be a descendant of Abraham's son Isaac, not Ishmael. Genesis 17:21. I've got another handout. This one is just one page folded. This one is three pages folded. These handouts. You don't have to take copious notes because they're all in here. So you'll get goodies tonight. Um, now, it's interesting that in the Muslim religion, they teach about Abraham taking his son, his only son, and taking him to Mount Moriah and binding him and building the fire and putting his son on the altar and pulling back the knife and the angel of Allah stopping him from killing his son Ishmael. That's what the Koran says. Not true, but it's a good story. But the scripture says specifically he would be a descendant of his son Isaac. Not just the son of Isaac, but he would be a descendant of Jacob. And not just Jacob, but he would be a descendant of Judah. Alright? So it's very, very specific. And even more specifically, in Isaiah, it even says that he would be a descendant of Jesse, of the tribe of Judah. Alright? Isaiah 11 says that. And that he would come from the house of David. That's in 2 Samuel, Jeremiah, and Psalms. Now, all the genealogical records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in 70. Alright? But um, there are certain categories of our genealogy that are maintained. And so his was maintained. Uh, Micah 5.2 says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a little no-count town. All right? But yet, Micah says, and you, Bethlehem Ephrata, shall come forth a scepter, the ruler. You know, amazing. Um, 
And imagine, get figure this, all right? Joseph and Mary, they didn't want Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, all right? They lived in Nazareth. Nazareth is way up in the north, in the Galilee. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem, six kilometers. It's a schlep, all right? The only reason Jesus was born there is because this decree of Caesar Augustus made a decree that everybody had to go to their hometown to get taxed. It wasn't in the family plan. And yet, to fulfill Scripture, it had to be that way. God's so clever. Now, Isaiah 7 says, in your translation, that He'll be born of a virgin. Actually, it doesn't. Sorry, folks. What it says is, He'll be born of an Alma. A-L-M-A-H. And Alma literally means a young girl. Now, the problem is if you just take it that way, like the rabbis say, oh, it doesn't say virgin, it says young girl. Okay, rabbi, how can a son born to a young girl be a sign from God? Most sons are born to a young girl. Now, the reality is that in those days, if a young girl was not a virgin when she married, her father would have stoned her to death. All right? So it's clearly implied, first of all, by the custom of the times, but more importantly, that Isaiah says, this shall be a sign unto you. All right? And for it to be a sign, it couldn't just be any old young girl. It had to be a virgin. All right? It also says that Messiah would be the seed of a woman. Well, women don't have seed. Men have seed. It's carried in the body of a woman. But um, God prophesied a a miraculous birth. And we see that miraculous birth over and over throughout the Word. Psalm 110 says he shall be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's no such word as Melchizedek in Hebrew. There's no such person as Melchizedek. All right? Melchizedek is a made-up word that was made up from two Hebrew words that when the Torah was translated first from Hebrew into Latin, the two Hebrew words, Melech Zadik, became Melchizedek. Anybody know where Armageddon is? There's no such place as Armageddon. Two he- No, there's not. Two Hebrew words, Har Megiddo, became Armageddon. All right? Har means mountain of Megiddo. Har Megiddo. That makes sense. It's a place. It's a mountain. All right? So the valley is of, it's the valley of Har Megiddo. The valley of the mountain of Megiddo. It's in front of the mountain of Megiddo. Anyway, Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. Abraham paid a tithe to the king of righteousness. Who is the king of righteousness? Yeshua is. And, and the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 5, tells us, I mean, it gives such a clear indication of who this king of righteousness is. It says, Melchizedek, who had no genealogy, no end, no beginning. All right? Who existed without an end or a beginning? Jesus. The Messiah existed before the creation of the world. God, the Messiah, and the Torah existed before the creation of the world. All right? So he had no beginning and no end. I believe that Abraham paid his tithe to a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. And when you pay your tithe, that's who you're paying it to. You're not paying your tithe to the local church. The local church is the instrument through which you give your tithe to the Lord. And your local church is responsible to God with that tithe. Pay your tithe. Um, Genesis 49 says, A scepter shall not pass from the tribe of Judah until the Messiah comes. Well, guess what? Yeshua is the line of the tribe of Judah. And he carries that scepter. So, the kingship of Israel came from David. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel. Was Saul of the tribe of Judah? No. How come? How did Saul get to be the king? Well, who was supposed to be the king of Israel? God. Israel was a theocracy. But the people said, we want to be just like them. 
And so their prophet says, you're not going to like it. You know, it's not going to be good for you. He's going to take your wealth. He's going to make it hard for you. But if you want a king, okay. You have to choose a king among your own people. So guess how they chose him? Nobody was as tall as Saul. He was a head taller than any other man, is what the word says. He was tall. He looked good. Let's make him king. Kind of like we elect presidents these days. Anyway. Um, okay. Um, interesting. Um, the scepter shall not pass from the tribe of Judah until Messiah comes. All right? That's an interesting phrase. Jacob, the patriarch, prophesied this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Okay, Shiloh comes from the Hebrew word shalem, peace, until peace comes. So, um, although Judah was neither Jacob's firstborn son, nor the son who would produce the priests, he was the tribe or the, the lineage that was where the king was to come from, all right? So the leadership was to go to Judah. Now, this didn't happen for over 600 years. Uh, Moses came from Levi, Joshua came from Ephraim, Gideon came from Manasseh, Samson came from Dan, Samuel came from Ephraim, Saul came from Benjamin. But when David finally became king, Judah held the scepter and didn't relinquish it until after the Messiah came. Shiloh, peace, the prince of peace. It's a reference to the Messiah. All right, now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, after the time of Jesus, the rule, Israel lost the right to judge their people. The Sanhedrin lost the right to judge its people because in 11 AD, um, the Romans forbade them from capital punishment. So they could no longer judge their own people. That's why the Jewish leaders took Jesus to the Romans and says, crucify him. All right? We want to kill him, but you won't let us. All right? And so they lost that right in 11 AD. And Jesus was born, you know, sometime just before that. So until Shiloh came, they were able to judge their people rightly. But when he came, they lost the right to judge him rightly. All right. Malachi 3.1 and Psalm 118 and Daniel 9 and Zechariah 11 and Haggai 12 two all say that he must come while the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. Well guess what? He did. And then right after he died, the temple was destroyed. Right? In fact, let me tell you a story. At Yom Kippur, one of the things that you do at Yom Kippur, or they used to do at Yom Kippur, <clears throat> is they would take a crimson cord. All right, they, they take two goats that look alike. They're the same age. Two goats. And one of them was you cast lots for the goats and one of them is the goat for the Lord. The other one is the goat for the, the scapegoat. The goat for the Lord, he gets sacrificed. The scapegoat, they take a crimson cord, a red cord, cut it in half, tie half of it around the horns of the scapegoat. They lay their hands on the head of this goat, pronounce all the sin of Israel on the head of this goat, and the Torah says, and you shall take it outside the camp. Because this was written back in the days when they were in the wilderness, they had the tabernacle. All right. Now, the Talmud, which is commentary on the Torah, explains how that was actually affected. You see, if you put all the sins of the nation on this goat's head, you don't want to see him walking back into camp two days later. All right? Now, sheep are very dumb animals. When a sheep gets lost, He'll just wander until the shepherd goes and finds him. But a goat, he knows where he's come from. A goat, when he gets hungry, he's coming home. So, what the Israelites did is they had a man who was assigned to take the goat out into the wilderness. And he would take him out into the wilderness to a cliff and make sure the cliff was high enough and bump the goat off so he'd fall down and die. Alright? Then, about ten days, or the other half of the red cord, they would hang on a peg 
in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And about ten days later, that cord would turn white. Remember what Isaiah said? Though your sins be as scarlet, it will become white as snow. It was a miracle. And when that cord turned white, they would send the man that had dropped off the goat out into the wilderness. And sure enough, that cord had turned white also. Now, the one out in the wilderness, okay, it's out in the sun, it gets bleached out. But the other one was indoors. It was under a canopy, under a tent, or under a ceiling. And it turned white. Now, the Talmud, in its explanation of this, has an interesting point. It says, this happened faithfully every year until about 40 years before the destruction of the temple. What happened about 40 years before the destruction of the temple? Jesus was crucified. And the red cord stopped turning white. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 said that a messenger will prepare the way for him in the wilderness. And guess what? His cousin John did exactly that. All right? Um, the precise time of his crucifixion, Daniel 9, um, says that there'll be a 490 year period uh, from the going forth of the commandment to restore the building Jerusalem. All right? 490 years. And so exactly at that time is when Messiah came. The book of Nehemiah, we learn his command was given in the month Nisan on the 20th year of the king. Anyway, all those are in the notes. You can read that all later. Um, Zechariah 9 says he will enter Jerusalem riding the donkey, the colt of an ass. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 21 and Luke 19. Let me tell you another story about that. In Exodus chapter 12, this is the very first Passover time. God told Moses, tell the children of Israel, they shall take a lamb for themselves and bring it into their house on the tenth day of the month. And they shall observe it until the fourteenth day of the month. And on the fourteenth day of the month, between the evenings, they shall sacrifice it. Now, between the evenings means middle of the afternoon. They shall sacrifice it. Okay? Now, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the tenth day of the month. And he was examined for four days by his followers, then by the Roman cohort, then by the priests, then by the judges, by Pontius Pilate. This all happened at Passover, all right? And on the 14th day of the month, at the time between the evenings, you shall sacrifice the lamb. Now, when you take your sacrifice, y'all pass the plate here, don't you, on Sunday? You just write a check. It's pretty easy, all right? Put cash in the box. No big deal. In those days, it wasn't so easy. You took a lamb. Either you brought it from your own herd or you bought a sacrificial lamb. And the head of the household would carry that lamb up 22 stairs. And when he gets to the Temple Mount, either a priest or a Levite would stop him and would examine the lamb. And having examined it and found it appropriate, he would wash his hands and would say, I find no fault in your sacrifice. Pontius Pilate declared Jesus the sacrificial lamb. Um, Psalm 69 says he'd be hated for no reason. John 15.25 says he was. Psalm 41.9 says he'd be betrayed. Matthew 27.3 says he was. Uh, Psalm 41.9 also not just says he would be betrayed, but he would be betrayed by a friend. And Matthew completes that. Um, Zechariah 11 says that the cost of his, the price of his betrayal would be the cost of a servant, 30 pieces of silver. And Matthew 27 says he was. Zechariah 11.13 says that the betrayal money will be cast under the floor. Matthew 27.5 says Judas threw the money down. Uh, more specifically, Zechariah says they'll be cast on the floor of the temple. And Matthew confirms that. And then in uh, Zechariah 11.13, it says that the money shall be used to buy a potter's field. Matthew 27.9 says it was. Isaiah 53 said he will not open his mouth to defend himself. Matthew 27. 12. Says that would have been him. You know, Isaiah 53 was considered a messianic prophecy forever. Well, forever. Until the 8th century of this era. About 700 years 
after Jesus had been crucified, the rabbis got it up to here with their students coming to them and saying, Rabbi, this Messiah that's prophesied in Isaiah here, sure does sound like that Jesus these Christians are always talking about. And so in the 8th century, the rabbis made a drastic change. And they said, no, that's not a prophecy about the Messiah. It's a prophecy about Israel. Well, I've got a real problem with that. First of all, it doesn't, nowhere in Isaiah does it say we or they. It always says he, first person singular. The other problem I have is it says he, like a lamb to the slaughter, did not open his mouth. Y'all know any Israelis? They're not silent about anything. Alright? So anyway. Um, Isaiah 50 verse 6, he'll be beaten and spit upon. Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 both confirm that he was. Isaiah 53.12 says he was numbered with the transgressors. And Matthew tells us the story that he was crucified between two thieves. Zechariah 12.10 says he'll be pierced. John 19 says he was. Psalm 22 graphically prophesies the Messiah's manner of death. Now, at the time the psalm was written, The penalty for blasphemy wasn't crucifixion, it was stoning. And yet, Psalm 22 clearly defines crucifixion. At the time that Jesus was first condemned by the Sanhedrin, they no longer had a legal right to put people to death. And so, had they, alright, their judging, their accusation against him is that he was a blasphemer, alright? So had the Sanhedrin had the legal right to put him to death, they would have stoned him. But Psalm 22 says, no, he's going to be crucified. And because the Roman government had taken the authority away from the Sanhedrin, all right, all these little details had to happen just so, all right? Just so. So that the Romans, they had reinstituted crucifixion just a few years prior. Crucifixion wasn't a Roman invention. It was actually an Assyrian invention. But when the Romans took control over the Middle East, and they hated the Jewish people so much, they reinstituted crucifixion because it was the most horrible form of capital punishment. And all those things had to be in place in order for Jesus to be crucified, according to Psalm 22. Psalm 34 says, not one of his bones will be broken. All right? And Exodus 12 says that the Passover lamb's bones may not be broken. John 19 says his bones are not broken. Psalm 22:18 says they will divide his clothing and cast lots for them. John 19:23 tells that story. Psalm 69 says he'll be given vinegar and gall to drink. Matthew 27 verse 48 says it was. Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let's read that. Because this gets misunderstood so much. Hebraic teaching, all right, works like this. All right, if I say to you, things go better with, what's the answer? What's, how's that finish? Coke, all right? Um, you know, um, Brill cream, brill, y'all remember brill cream? Brill cream, a little dabble. Right, alright? Alright. Hebraic thinking, Hebraic teaching is, you say the beginning of a verse to imply the entirety of the text. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't, he didn't feel like God had turned his back on him, alright? If you read the whole psalm, alright? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. That's what Jesus was crying out on the cross, alright? He was reminding all these people watching Him, hey, you've trusted God forever. Don't blow it. Even in this, He's going to be glorified. Verse 30, Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord and to the coming generation 
They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. Alright? Even in him, His saying, Oh God, why have You forsaken Me? He was reminding them, hey, generations to come are going to hear about this and declare how good God is. Isaiah 53 says He's going to be buried with the rich. Um, actually, in the Hebrew, it says He will make His graves, plural, with the rich. Why would He make His graves with the rich? Because He died for you, and He died for you, and He died for you, and He died for me. That's an interesting Hebraic anomaly. There's a few of them in Scripture. Uh, and we know He was, he was uh, buried with the rich. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a very, very wealthy man. Psalm 16.10 says he will not decay. And Acts 2.31 says he didn't. Psalm 66 also says that he'll be resurrected from the dead. Psalm 68 says he will ascend to heaven. Psalm 110 says he'll be seated at the right hand of the Father. And Psalm 2 says he'll be called the Son of God. Now, Isaiah 35 says he's going to perform many miracles. Y'all know Jesus performed a few miracles? In your handout, I've got 42 miracles that Jesus performed. Alright, to validate that. He cured two blind men. He pulled a coin out of a fish's mouth. He made deaf and dumb men see or speak. He healed the blind men of Bethsaida. He passed unseen through the crowds and escaped when they tried to kill him. He caused miraculous uh, catches of fish. He raised the widow's son at Nain. Uh, he healed a woman with a spirit of infirmity. Uh, he uh, cured a boy with dropsy. He cured ten lepers. He healed Mathesis. He turned water into wine. He cured a nobleman's son in Capernaum. Uh, he uh, cured an impotent man at Bethsaida. A man born blind he cured. Uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Uh, a Syrophoenician woman's daughter was cured. He fed 4,000. He fed 5,000. Uh, he, he cursed a fig tree. Um, that in itself was a miracle. Uh, he cured the centurion's servant, uh, a blind and dumb demoniac. He cured him. He cured a demoniac in a synagogue in Capernaum. He healed Peter's wife's mother. That was brilliant. All right. Um, he goes to the synagogue early in the morning. It's Sabbath. All right. And the Sabbath service is a little long, so they go early in the morning. And he comes back to Peter's mother's house. You know, it's probably eleven o'clock by now. And she's in bed sick. So what does Jesus do? He touches her, heals her. And she got up and served her. That was the creation of Jewish brunch. It was a good thing. Um, and you know what? You come with us in June, I'll show you the place it happened. Um, he caused the pigs to rush down into the lake and be drowned. That's what you do with pigs. Um, he uh, uh, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He cured the woman with an issue of blood. She touched the fringe of his garment and was cured. Uh, he cured a man of palsy. He cured a withering hand. He cured a lunatic child. He walked on the water. Uh, he, uh, uh, you know, he, he was transfigured before them. He was resurrected. He ascended. And, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, scripture says he'll speak in parables. Sure enough, he did. Alright? It's just, he's the fulfillment of everything prophesied. Just like he told those two guys at their house in, in, in Emmaus. All of Moses and the prophets had to be fulfilled. And they are in him. So, questions, comments, or concerns before you get some questions that you're going to be commenting and concerned with. Um, well, I'll tell you. The biggest problem they have is when we go talking to them about a personal Savior, you've left them out there. Because if He can't save all of Israel, He can't be the Messiah. And the Torah says that when somebody comes to you and tries to get you to worship a God that draws you away from the Torah, they're a false prophet and you must flee from them. Alright? Now, what has been the Christian witness to Jewish people? Well, part of it has been, hey guys, you ought to come to Jesus. You wouldn't have to mess with all that Torah stuff. You can eat whatever you want. You can, you know, 
go to football games on Saturday. All right? Well, guess what? To anybody that knows Torah, who is Jesus? He's God, right? You're telling them about a false God. What you have to remember... All right, how many of y'all want to be the bride of Christ? Anybody want to be the bride of Christ? Okay. Most Christians want to be the bride of Christ and they want to ignore the family. All right? If you've been married more than six months, you've learned a strong lesson. You married the whole family, didn't you guys? Didn't you ladies? All right? You married the whole family. You can't be the bride unless you realize. The bride, according to Revelation 19, the bride has made herself ready. What's that mean? Well, it means that she's prepared herself to be married to an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. So maybe you need to learn about what he likes to eat and when he worships and how he dresses and how he lives. All right? And, and if we're going to present the gospel to Jewish people, we've got to do it in a way that they're able to understand it. He came and he fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the Torah. That's what he told those guys in Emmaus. Everything, all the law and the prophets and the, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's who he was. He never broke any, any commandment in the Torah. And so when we go tell Jewish people, hey, you should get saved so you don't have to do Torah, you're not going to get any Jewish people saved that way. On the contrary, you know. In reality, they ought to come to Jesus so they can live Torah exactly. Alright? Jesus says, my yoke is easy. Alright? What is that about? He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. Alright? The yoke of a rabbi is his interpretation of the Torah. He says, hey, I know what it really means because I believe that when Moses spoke the Torah to, to, I mean, when God spoke the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai, when God was speaking Torah, Jesus' lips were moving. He existed then. He was, He is the living Torah. Alright? And so everything He did was in accordance with His commandments. He said, if you love me, you'll do my commandments. What were His commandments? The Torah. If he, you believe Jesus is God, don't you? All right, well, the Torah is God's commandments, right? So those must be His commandments. And so, instead of trying to show Jewish people how they can get out of this, what you can show them is, look, if you want to live according to God's way, the only way you can do that, the only way you can please God is with the Spirit of God. And with the Spirit of God, have a relationship with the Messiah. Because He leaves in you His Ruach, His Spirit. All right? And and when you get the Spirit, now you can live His God's instruction. And that's pleasing to God. And we said this, I think, last week. I don't know your name, sir, but the policeman back here. I asked him, I said, you know, don't you know the best thing you can do for yourself is whatever your wife wants? All right? The best thing we can do for ourselves is whatever God tells us to do. And He's gracious enough to tell us exactly what He wants us to do. It's in the Torah. So that's why Jewish people don't get saved. Just we don't approach them in a way that they can receive it. And they want to see all Israel saved. All right? I've got a dear friend of mine. He's my favorite tour guide. He's going to be our guide on this trip. Roni Netzer. I've taken 500 people to Israel, and I've taken about 80 pastors. And every pastor that I've taken has been absolutely amazed that Roni doesn't believe. Because Roni knows the New Testament as good as any preacher you'll ever hear preach. How can he not believe what he teaches us, they say. Roni comes from seven generations of rabbis. Roni says, if I accepted this Jesus, I'd be turning my back on my ancestors, on my family, on my next door neighbors. I can't do that. So, we've got to show Him how. Coming to faith in Jesus doesn't convert you. It doesn't make... I'm more Jewish now than I have ever been in my entire life since I've come to faith. Alright? I'm still Jewish. Now, you who were far off, cut off from God with no hope in the world, that's Paul's writing, alright? have now come near to the commonwealth of Israel through your faith in Jesus. You have been converted from pagans into Christians. 
I haven't been converted. I'm still Jewish. I just kicked it up a notch. Alright? I'm not a converted Jew. You know. Your faith in Jesus makes you more like me than makes me like you. He's the ultimate Jew. And that's the message we've got to share with our Jewish friends. You know, it's a very Jewish thing. You know. I mean, if I try to read, you know, Romans to my Orthodox friends in Jerusalem, it's like, whoa, 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 that's the Gentile Bible. You know what I tell them? No. The New Testament was written by Jews to Jews about a Jew who lived in the Jewish homeland. He was the promised Messiah of the Jewish people. The New Testament is a very Jewish book. The Gentiles, they stole it from us. But they're giving it back. And more of us are receiving it back now than ever before in the history of the world. There's more Jewish believers in Jesus today than at any time in the history of the world. Praise God. There's revival going on amongst my people now like never before. You know, we're coming soon to the time when I believe we're going to see all Israel will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean every Jewish person is going to come to Jesus. But it means that the nation... Now we think about America. Well, we, we used to think that America was a Judeo-Christian nation. We've been told differently by some, but we're not going to go there tonight. Um, but, basically, America is a Christian nation. But Israel is basically a Jewish nation. You know, they don't believe in Jesus and we do, basically, all right? But we're coming to a time when that's not going to be so true. We're coming to a time, and I don't know if it'll be in our lifetimes, but I believe it'll be in our children's lifetimes, when Israel will be a nation that welcomes Jesus. And Jesus says when that happens, that's when he's coming back. He says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That means welcome, welcome him. And I'm seeing that more and more and more right now in this generation than ever before in the history of the world. Anything else? Um, absent. Except, I mean, the first evidence of the Holy Spirit, when's the first evidence of the Holy Spirit in the Bible? Yeah, it's in Genesis. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. There was a Spirit, alright? But, the, the rabbis have no relationship with the Holy Spirit. No concept of the Holy Spirit, alright? And so, that's what's lacking. That's the gap. That's what they desperately need. How can they get it? Faith in Yeshua. That's the next step. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, remember in, 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 uh, where was it? I forgot where it is, but somewhere they, they asked him, um, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? And they said, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. Alright, that's the New Testament someplace. Go ahead, I'm sorry. It's missing an element of it, yeah. But I mean, they see the Spirit of God is an element of Hashem, of God Himself. Alright? And I believe that too. I mean, y'all believe in the Trinity, right? I don't. I don't think you do either. The word Trinity means three appearing as one. Y'all don't believe in three gods, do you? That look like one God? No, I believe in the triunity. The word triunity means one appearing as three. Alright? But when we go tell Jewish people, Oh, we believe in the Trinity. We Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's only one God. Yeah? And my Orthodox friends who know me, they question my triunity. They say, why do you only recognize three manifestations of God? I mean, what do we see tonight? God appeared as a man. God appeared as the angel of the Lord. God appeared as fire. Alright? Was that fire a manifestation of God? Yeah. Alright? The Kabbalist, which is Jewish mysticism, they see ten manifestations, ten different aspects of God's nature. And I don't have a problem with that either. I think God 
manifest Himself in a multitude of ways. I mean, ever seen a full moon come up over the Mediterranean Sea? Oh yeah, that's God showing up, you know? A starlit night in the desert. God manifests Himself in a multitude of ways. But as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is how He reveals Himself to us more fully. It's how He communicates with us more directly. Alright? I mean, that moon coming up over the Mediterranean, sometimes in the fall it's orange, it's like the color of His shirt, it's gorgeous. <gasps> oh, it's God! But He doesn't communicate to us in that way. He communicates to us now by His Spirit. In ancient times, by His Son. Before that, the, the voice of God was heard from heaven. Alright? But, the three manifestations, the three principal manifestations as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how He relates to us and communicates with us and teaches us His ways. So, so yeah, they're missing that. They're lacking that. My question to my Orthodox friends is, look, if God can manifest Himself as a man to Abraham at the tent, to Jacob, wrestle with Him all night, why couldn't He manifest Himself as a man and reveal Himself to a whole generation of people living up in the Galilee? to which my Orthodox friends have no answer. Father, thank You so much for the time You've given us again tonight. Lord God, we love You. We love serving You. We love learning more and more about You and Your way. So we bless You, Father. We bless Your holy, holy, holy name. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.